What is going on, Case Catholic family? The date today is October 9th, 2018, and you have just tuned in to Case Catholic Radio. We have not uploaded any episodes in quite a long time, so I hope you are as excited as I am to finally be kicking off this academic year with some new episodes of CCR. With that said, we aren't going to be easing our way into the new year this year, and the topic we're kicking off the year with is not an exciting topic, but it is an important one. Part of the reason why this episode took such a long time to finish off is that when all of this stuff was going down in August, there was a flood of information coming out and almost all of it was valenced. That is to say that almost all of it had a bias coming from one side or the other. With that said, I felt like it was extremely, extremely important to do plenty of research to be sure I was getting the information right. With all of that said, what we're going to talk about today is August's Pennsylvania grand jury trial, which implicated many members of the clergy in Pennsylvania either in acts of sexual abuse or the covering up of such acts since 1940. For many of you, this will be older news, but for others, you might have passively heard that there was another situation involving Catholic clergy and sex abuse and never really heard anything in detail about it. So while this is in relation to an event that has more or less found its way out of the news cycle, I thought it would be worthwhile to talk about what happened, to talk about also what it means for us as people of faith and to talk about what we can actually do going forward. So, in August, after a two-year investigation, a grand jury in Pennsylvania released a report which detailed the history of clerical sex abuse and cover-ups over a period which began in 1940. Over these 80 years, 300 priests were credibly alleged to have sexually assaulted around 1,000 individuals, the majority of whom were either children or vulnerable adults. It was also found that for much of this period, the church's practice in responding to these claims was not to pass along the accusations to civil authorities, but to handle them in-house. While at a glance that might strike somebody as immediately suspicious, some might argue, and not without grounding, that that alone is not intrinsically wrong. The church does have a law and a system of its own through which to address these claims, and it is within the scope of that law to level serious consequences toward priests who molest children. But the failure, what is wrong, lies in this. That the way many in the leadership in Pennsylvania responded to these credible accusations was woefully insufficient and scandalously negligent. It appears clear from the report that the main objective of those authorities in the church to whom these accusations were brought was, quote, not to protect children, but to avoid scandal. It's important to understand what this was not, however, not in order to mitigate the gravity and depravity of what the report did detail, but simply to understand what the objective and what the findings of this report were. The grand jury report in question did not detail a discovery of a new wave of clerical sexual sexual abuse, 
such as that that took place in 2002, nor was that the objective of the investigation. What this report described was the findings of a scrutiny into the way that the church had handled allegations of sex abuse by priests and religious in their charge during the period in question, since the 1940s. And that scrutiny showed this, that leaders of the church in Pennsylvania throughout much of the period investigated by this grand jury showed a gross lack of competence to investigate allegations of crimes by its own leaders and showed also disordered priorities in their choice to hide credible accusations in order to prevent people of faith from beginning to question their faith due to the failures of their leaders, rather than choosing instead to protect the very people Christ told us to bring safely to him, children. While, as I said, the church has its own laws and systems in place to respond in fitting fashion to these allegations, this report illustrated that for much of this period, particularly up until 1990, according to one report by NPR, its authorities in Pennsylvania, in my opinion, did not apply these laws properly, applying what are called pastoral solutions, such as mandated counseling and temporary removal from ministry and public life, rather than the full extent of what canon law allows and, in my reading, recommends permanent removal from priestly ministry. And because of this too gentle approach with men who had shown themselves to be dangerous, people continued to be victimized for years longer than ever had to take place. While by the time of this report, most all of the priests who were credibly accused had long been removed from their position or otherwise passed away, the wounds from the church's earlier failures were still carried in the hearts of those for whom the clergy's inaction led to victimization. So then the question becomes for us, how do we as people of faith appropriate these facts? When our leaders can so clearly and so publicly make mistakes that lead directly to the victimization of many who otherwise would have been safe in the, in the arms of Mother Church, what reason is there to remain Catholic? And that's what I want the thrust of our conversation to be about. This is ultimately the purpose of putting out this podcast episode. Not to blindly throw accusations at this church that I love or lament over times in which some of our leaders have grossly failed to live up to their call, but to talk about why, despite these things, I still am and believe it is right for all of us to remain unrepentantly, unflinchingly, unapologetically Catholic. Why do I say that? Why do I believe this is the right route? There's something that a lot of people would say in response to that question, a point that is true, but it alone is insufficient. While it is insufficient, though, I do believe that it is important that I say it, that it is said. And that is that the vast majority of priests and bishops are genuine men of God who desire to lead their flocks to Christ. And as somebody who has personal friends with many priests, I can confidently say that other than the victims and their loved ones, no one is suffering more for the sins of their brothers than the tens of thousands of virtuous priests who are trying to do the work of the Lord in an environment where people who wear the same collar have done such great harm. I think that's important for us to bear in mind. But the reason I think it is insufficient alone as an answer to the question we posed 
is that I don't think that it gets to the hurt which underlies the question. When someone in pain asks, why should I be Catholic if the men that I was raised to trust can do such evil things? Most of the time, they're not asking, is the church still good? But rather, why would I choose to be a part of a broken church? And so any response along the lines of, the church isn't quite as broken as it looks right now, misses the point. What I think does suffice as an answer to this question is something which, while it is not necessarily easy to live by, is surprisingly simple. And that is this. The reason why these terrible truths about men who have been leaders in the church shouldn't lead us to question our devotion to Christ or the church that he gave us is that it is not in the virtue or the wisdom or the courage or the righteousness of men and women that we have ever professed faith, but in the redeeming love of one man who poured out blood and water from his own body to create this church. And I want to emphasize that I say this not in reaction to this report, as if to say, okay, so this is bad. Let me think long and hard about why I should remain Catholic. On the contrary, because I have known this truth to be believed and taught by the church for so long, even upon hearing and reading this news, though disheartened, though disgusted at some points, I never for a moment thought, maybe this church isn't all that it claims to be. Because I know that it has always claimed to be a refuge for sinners. Disappointing, disheartening, heart-rending as it is and as it should be for us to see the depths of sin and the degree of politicking and the disregard for the weak that can be present in some places so near to the heart of the church on earth, topically speaking, and its leaders, the existence of these things within the church still should not lead us to doubt what the church is. Why? Because the church admits that, quote, from the catechism, <laughs> the church, at once holy and always in need of purification, follows constantly the path of penance and renewal. Let's unpack this quote because, as often happens in these documents, a lot was said in very few words. In this passage, the Catechism makes an assertion that at first glance might seem paradoxical, that we are both holy and in need of purification. How does that work? How can we be both? Well, let's start by talking about what it means to say that the Church is holy. The Church's holiness is not a function in the first order of the sum total of the virtues and vices of her members. A professor that I had in graduate school wrote an article about this, uh, this trial, and he pointed out that that would hardly be a church worth belonging to. No, the Church's holiness is a consequence of her origins, the self-emptying love of Christ that brought us together as a body. We are sacred not because we have earned such a distinction by heroic acts of virtue and unerring evasion of vice, but because Christ has chosen to set us apart 
and chosen to do so at the cost of his own life's blood. The church's holiness, second, lies in Christ's constant, perpetual choosing of his church, despite its faults. An election that mirrors the Lord's continuously choosing the flawed people of Israel throughout the whole of the Old Testament. And we know that Christ is still constantly choosing us because we still have the Eucharist. He still offers himself to this church full of broken people every day. Yes, the church throughout history and even to this day does exhibit vast degrees of holiness and practice. But we make a grave mistake if we start to identify those works as what actually make us holy. Friends, it has never been the virtue of the members that makes us holy, but the unfailing love of the head. But then, if we are holy, how can we also be in need of purification? Well, that's a consequence of what I just said. Our holiness and identity is a function primarily of Christ's perpetually choosing us. But as has always been apparent to anybody with eyes, Christ's choosing us does not automatically take away our sinfulness. No, the members of the church still have disordered desires which lead to disordered action, which ultimately lead our hearts further from Christ and multiply our sufferings. And as St. Paul tells us in his letter to the Corinthians, when one member suffers, the whole body suffers with it. What that tells us as is that as long as a single sinner remains in the church, and the church will be full of them until the end of time, we are constantly going to be in this process of purification, through which we grow into the holiness which has been conferred on us by the grace of Christ. So, to summarize, we, the church, know that we have not made it to that ultimate purity. So it does not surprise us to find that sin still lives in our members. The nature of that sin can surprise us. The gravity of that sin can surprise us. But that it exists cannot. So when we who know the church stands always in need of purification, see this need of purification manifested so clearly as it was this August, such a revelation should not drive us away, but should drive us to pray. We should pray, of course, for those who are victimized by men who claim to be of God, that they might recover totally from the trauma of their experience and see true justice take place. The hard part, we should pray also for both the abusers and those who facilitated the possibility for these abuses to take place by their inaction, that by a life of repentance, prayer, and fasting, they might avoid the fate of which Christ warned us when he says, it would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were cast into the sea than that he should cause one of these little ones to sin. Finally, we should pray for the whole church that 
guided by those clergy and lay people who genuinely pursue righteousness, we might proceed along the course of our purification so that we might ultimately become in action what Christ has made us by grace, holy. And this is the thrust of what Pope Francis said in his letter to the faithful in response to these revelations of what took place in the Church of Pennsylvania, especially in regards to the question of, well, where do we go from here? He emphasizes that we, the Church, cannot simply declare this the responsibility of the clergy to uproot these problems and we just sit back and wait patiently for that uprooting to take place. In one article I read about this, it was written by a man named Jonathan Heaps. The author points out that, quote, it would be an odd thing for the laity to at once declare justified loss of faith in the ordained hierarchy of the church and at the same time entrust reform entirely to their hands. Unquote. And indeed it would. While the guilt for these failures falls on a number of priests, the responsibility of reform falls on all of us. So then where do we, the laity, fit in to the work of reforming the church? In the same letter, Pope Francis, drawing on an image from chapter 17 of the Gospel according to Matthew, where Jesus drives out a demon that cannot be excised except by prayer and fasting, recommends precisely those two things, prayer and fasting. Those are what Pope Francis says must be the through line that grounds the church's, both lay and clergy, efforts to excise this, ev this evil from within our own sheepfold. Why? Again, not because we share personal guilt for the failures of some men in the clergy. Rather, because first, just as when one member suffers, the whole body suffers, when one member flourishes, the whole body does as well. The one thing every individual can do to help the church along its path to purification is to become purer and holier themselves. But also, on a more ground level, on a more practical level, for lack of a better term, prayer and fasting has an effect on our minds and spirits that leads us to be more sensitive to injustice and to not be content with leaving the pursuit of justice in other people's hands. Leads us, prayer and fasting lead us to rather be compelled to act when we see justice fail, when we see failures of justice. And I think that Francis knows that the more people who engage in these transformational practices, the more minds, hearts, and hands the church will have on ensuring that things like these never happen again within her walls. This way, clergy and lay alike will work together in making the church what it should be for everyone, not just for most, a foretaste of heaven while we sojourn on earth. And for that reason, friends, in times like these, it does no good for good people of faith, for good men and women to leave the church. What we need 
is those people, is you, to lead the church. So this was a heavy episode. And for those of you that were hoping that our year would start off with a little bit more of a lighthearted, joyful, or a scriptural or spiritual episode, I'm sorry for the weightiness of this one. We will be covering some other weighty topics throughout the semester and the year, including finishing up our conversation on the reasons for faith. But I'll be sure to keep simple scriptural reflections and joyful conversations prominently in the mix as well. I thank you all who have taken the time to listen to this, and I hope that it has helped you to make a little sense of what to do in these moments when we are reminded that we are part of a church in need of purification. Anyway, I'll be looking forward to catching you guys throughout the week and seeing you all at around, uh, seeing you all around at all of the events we have going on at Case Catholic. And until then, guys, remember, you can do all things through Christ who strengthens you. Peace!